So yeah, my name's Rob, pastor here, um, and it's a real honour to have you with us. I'm going to start by sharing a story with you, so get, I was going to say get comfortable. You can't possibly get comfortable in these chairs, can you? <laughs> You'll fight over those green ones, yeah. <laughs> I'll share a story. The 13th of January, 1982, it started off just like any regular day, regular morning for Alan Williams. Alan Williams was, he was on a regular flight scheduled from Washington DC airport to Fort Lauderdale or Lauderdale, I forget how they pronounce it now, in, in Florida. The only thing different was that the weather conditions that day were absolutely horrendous. It had snowed considerably and in fact the airport had actually shut down for a period of time because of the bad weather. And it had only just opened that noon, that time that day. Many flights had been cancelled. And flight 90, in particular, had been delayed for over an hour, hour and a half, past its time. Now, the airport was just so icy that when it came for the, to the plane trying to back away from the terminal, it couldn't. It was stuck. It was just, it couldn't move away from the terminal. Even the pilots, they put on the, the reverse thrusters, which is something that Boeing do not endorse, but they tried to kind of push the the plane back, and that didn't work either. Um, it, it was in well, they ended up having to be towed backwards from the terminal with a an airport tug. That day, it turned out that the wings had not been de-iced properly. The day after the event, some of the testings that they did showed that the percentage of de-icing the chemical that they use. And spray onto the wings. That day they'd only used 18% concentration as opposed to the prescribed 30% uh, concentration. Some of the, it, they just ended up with lots of faulty readings in the, in the cockpit because of all the frozen um, sensors and, and whatever. So they had all these strange numbers. They didn't know what to do with all of this data. I mean, they, they were fairly new pilots as well and they just, how do we interpret all of this data that's coming through? But they decided to go ahead anyway and continue to take off. Uh, they continued through the, the procedures. They didn't want to further sort of delay the bottleneck of uh, flights that were going to happen behind them. Now, the pilots had also failed to engage the internal de-icing mechanisms within the engine, uh, within the engines, Essentially, the mechanical uh, the mechanism uses the heat of the engine to ensure that the sensors don't, don't freeze over, and they hadn't activated those as well. As they're hurtling down the runway, the pilots noticed something's not quite right here. The gauges were showing that they had full power, but they could tell we haven't got full power here. We're not moving fast enough to get the plane off the ground at the place where it should do. And instead, it had to continue for a further sort of half a mile down the runway before it could actually get off the floor. Although the 737 did manage to become airborne that day, it only attained a maximum altitude of 352 feet before it became, began to lose altitude again as the plane engines stalled. The data recorders later indicated that the aircraft was airborne for just... 30 seconds. It crashed into 14th Street Bridge, um, which 
uh, straddles the Potomac River, hit six cars and a lorry. It took out like 97 feet of railing and around about 40 feet of the bridge wall itself before the plane plunged into the icy river. The tail section of the plane was the only remaining part of the aircraft that was out of the surface of the water. Onlookers were obviously horrified. And they looked and they just thought, man, there's just no way there could be any survivors in this. And yet, much to their surprise, six people bobbed up from the wreckage, shouting, help us, help us. Now, due to the blizzard-like conditions, the emergency response vehicles couldn't actually get to the people around on the river. I mean, they, it took them a long time to get there anyway, but when they arrived, they didn't have all the kit to be able to get to them on the water. All this jagged, icy water just made it impossible for anybody to reach them. These six survivors, they were trying to hold on to this tiniest part of the aircraft that was still above the, the surface of the water. On the riverbank, people, they just like yanked ladders off of trucks to try and kind of lay out over the ice to get to them. Or they made uh, you know, makeshift rope out of people's scarves and uh, fan belts from cars. They just used anything, just tied together to try and get, get to them. So there were numerous attempts to get to the, from the bank to the survivors to no avail. The survivors by this time had been in the water for 20 minutes, this frozen water. They got broken bones and you know terrible cuts and lashings and whatever from the crash. One survivor had been bloated, blinded by um, jet fuel. They'd literally had to swim up through their friend, the dead bodies of their friends and family in order to survive being drowned themselves. And here they are now, their hands were just so frozen, they're clenched as like, in like claw formation as they're kind of slipping over the wet metal of the tail of the plane. By now the sun's going down. The whole thing is just looking so grim, so bleak. It's looking like there's no way they're going to make it out of this. And then all of a sudden, like a beacon of hope in the sky, this helicopter, the rescue helicopter, kind of burst onto the scene. And it kind of comes over and hovers over the water and it threw down a rescue line and a ring to the people and it plunged plunged in and plucked out the first of the six survivors, got them away. Then it came back and it put down the, the line again. And this is where events become a bit strange. Because the line came down, it came to our, our man, Alan, Arlen Williams. He quickly handed the rope and the hoop to the next person. And the helicopter drew them up, took them away, came back, threw it down again to Arlen who once again handed it to the next person. And he did it again and again and again, each time. And then the helicopter came back for Arlen, who was the last one in the water, and tragically, he was no longer above the surface of the water. On that fateful, fateful day, only five of six people made it out alive. I was thinking, wow, wow. This guy, Arlen Williams, he's in, this, in the middle of this desperately grave situation and he chose to save the lives of five strangers instead of thinking about himself what an amazing story that is incredible story i think there's something really important and something really powerful about telling stories like this looking back and remembering these heroic 
gallant events that take place in individuals, like what we were doing last week. You know, we were went into town, we were remembering the heroes of the, of the First and Second World Wars, and we were just remembering back. And I think it's so important that we do look back and remember it. I mean, it's important because it's important to honour people like that who gave up everything, literally everything, their life for the sake of others. But it's also incredibly powerful because these stories, they also tell God's story. These stories, they're stories of self-sacrifice. They're kind of retelling God's self-sacrificial rescue plan story. He gave himself up for all of humanity. And this morning, I'm continuing with our series, Emulate, that I started a few weeks ago. I've been talking about something which is our core purpose here at the Vineyard. It's all about discipleship. We're all about becoming disciples of Jesus ourselves and also making disciples of others. And the key part to this particular series is that that we're becoming more and more like God, becoming more and more like Jesus in our character, in our natures, in our responses. We grow as disciples over time, and there are things, you know, there are things that we need to do in that process. Yeah, the things that God has to do, but there are also things that we need to do in order to keep in step with that what God has for us and that what He's growing us into. And so that's what we've been doing. We've been using this series just to kind of take out and unpack some of the characteristics of God. And, and some good you know, characteristics that we would do well to emulate in our lives as well. And so we're taking our best or most accurate picture of God's nature, the best image, the source of narratives, the best image that we have, and that is through looking at the person Jesus Christ, because he is the exact representation of God. <clears throat> now, before getting into uh, some of the texts that we're going to read, I just want to talk a little bit about our culture today, our society that we live in. Because just about every sociologist that does studies about our modern day culture and society, they are noticing a significant trend towards narcissism in our culture. What I mean is our culture teaches people to live life your way. You know, think primarily about yourself. It's like... You need to think about your own pleasure and your own needs. You know, satiate your own desires. You need to press into all those things that are going to shift you towards the great goal in your life, which is your happiness. That's what society uh, is pushing us towards. And politicians and all their policies, they thrive in a narcissistic world, don't they? You know, they kind of present their... Um, Promises, sometimes empty promises. <laughs> and they say, you know, this is all, you personally are going to benefit from this. This is going to serve your needs. You're going to, it's going to satiate your deepest desires, make you happy, make you safe, make you content. And they win our votes over, don't they? Because of these promises, because of this narcissistic leaning within every one of us. And that's why the, what these studies actually show is that we're moving more and more towards this well, it's kind of self-centeredness. Uh, and it feeds into this idea that, you know, everything exists to make us feel happy, make me feel happy, make me feel safe, make me feel content. Everything around us exists for us. 
Now here's the thing. The church of Jesus Christ exists for everything that is totally the opposite to that. It flies right in the face of all of that. And I've said this before, I really do believe that the church is the only organization that exists for others, not for ourselves. I really do believe that. We exist, well, we exist for the sake of what God wants in this world, right? But we also exist for the sake of those who have yet to experience the love and the hope of Jesus Christ. Let me think about that for a minute. Whenever we gather as the people of God, we do so not so much to have our needs met, but that we can gather and benefit the lives of one another, right? And because we, well, secondly, because we know that together we can do that what we can't do on our, on our own. We gather around this man named Jesus Christ, who is making everything new in this world. And everything that we do, we do to work towards that end, which is effectively combating, as I say, coming against this thing called narcissism, this me-centeredness in the world. And as we do that, we're becoming more the people that, are, that, that truly love. I mean, think about that word for a minute, love. <coughs> Even that word's been somewhat distorted and diluted by our culture. I mean, what does that actually mean? <laughs> love. We say things, I certainly say things like, I love pizza. <coughs> you know, I love chocolate. I, I love that song in the charts right now. And then in the next breath, I say, I love my wife. Is it quite possible that I love pizza in the same way I love my wife? <laughs> I've been rumbled. Somebody knows me. I just check in. She's looking at me, isn't she? <laughs> of course I don't. Now, sometimes I think I do. And that's just me being brutally honest. I mean, but you, you know what I'm saying? It's like that word, It's it's got... It's deeply powerful, and it has deep meaning, deep, significant, deeply significant word. It seems it's been kind of co-opted. It's, and in its co-opted state, what does it actually mean today? In the church, we read the Bible, and, and in the Bible it says, you know, God is love, right? It says that the greatest of all of God's commandments is to love God and to love your neighbor. It says that anyone who doesn't love doesn't even know God. That's in uh, 1 John 4. But what does it even mean to love God and to love your neighbor? What does it actually mean to love something or someone? That word we know is deeply significant. It has power. It's very powerful. And yet culture has stripped it of its significance and meaning. But I love the way that the Bible actually steals that back. I use that word again, didn't I? I love the way. I really like the way the Bible has kind of reinstills that back, you know. Um, it kind of snatches it back and takes it back from what our sort of sentimental meaning of it is. Let's start by looking at some of the Bible, shall we? It's, uh, we're looking at the first letter of John, so 1 John 3, 16. If you've got your Bibles, I keep saying every week, bring your Bibles, because what I put up on the screen, I might make it up. And so you got, you can't trust me, okay? I'm not a trustworthy person. You have to check it out yourself in your own Bible. So, um, so 1 John chapter 3, as opposed to the Gospels, so a bit further back in your Bibles to 1 John 3, 
16, and it says this. It says, this is how we know what love is. You know, that's what I'm asking the question. (laughs) What does it actually mean to love then? He said, well, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid his life down for us. And we are to lay our lives, lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother and sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. You know, right here, John, he describes this word that we've kind of like made this sentimental idea. And he says, this is its meaning. This is its definition. Well, love, by definition, it's sacrificial. It's sacrificial. He said that God demonstrated his love for us and actually demonstrated it through the actions of his own son, Jesus, who came into the world, lived among us, lived a perfect life and suffered. And actually came to a point of literally submitting his own life, giving up his own life in the most grueling way. Now I have to say at this point, just to kind of interject in, but people sometimes say to me, Rob, wasn't there some other way God could have done this? Couldn't he have done it in some kind of uh, less reckless, less painful way? Couldn't he just like snapped his fingers or spoke a commanding word and somehow restored our connection to him and made things right. And I just think, yeah, I think maybe there could have been other ways. I don't know. I mean, God's God. He could do whatever he he wanted. And to be honest, I just, I don't know why God chose to do it this way, through sacrifice, through loving. I'm I'm both amazed and perplexed by the whole uh, thing that God would show us his love in such a selfless, altruistic sort of way. My head can't get around that. That he'd reach out and love us and save us in such a way. And it's almost like he seemingly missed out a rather important point. (laughs) That we might not love him back. (laughs) It's like he overlooked that point. Of course he didn't. He knew. He knew from the beginning, from the end, and the end from the beginning. But he chose to sacrifice anyway. And this is what John is getting onto in the text here. This is the true definition of love. It's sacrificial. It's sacrificial giving. And then he goes on to say, for you and I, for us to actually say yes to this love, to say yes in our own lives, to loving in the way that Jesus offers love, it means it's going to cost you. It's costly. (laughs) It means that you and I are going to have to say no to certain things, so, so no to things that satiate our desires, say no to things that bolster our comforts and feed our needs or feed our wants or whatever, in order to say yes to a pile of other things, saying yes to things that meet the needs of others. As I say, this is in strong contradiction to what our society says about putting me first, you know, look after my desires, my goals, my agenda. <laughs> Mm. For us, to emulate God is to become more and more like Jesus. It is to step into that identity, that image that God created us for as as humanity. Uh, And what that looks like is we love sacrificially, just like he loves sacrificially. But isn't that what we say? It shouldn't be any surprise to any of us. Isn't that what we say in baptisms? 
we say, you know, in baptism, we say, just as Jesus surrendered his life, laid his life down, I am somehow entering into that death of Christ that I may be raised into his new life also. Okay, I will answer two questions this morning. Firstly, to whom are we to love sacrificially? And secondly, how can I outwork this sacrificial loving in my day-to-day life? You know, how, how do I actually go ahead and do that? Now, first of all, John writes uh, that we should emulate Christ by laying down our life for, and in quote, he says, brothers and sisters. But what does that actually mean? Well, firstly, I want you to take a look around you. <laughs> You're called to lay your life down with the people in this, for the people in this room, firstly. The word that John used here is it's a Greek word that in the original text, Adelphoi. Um, I think that's how it's pronounced. Um, it's one that he often used when he was referring to the brothers or the brothers and sisters. And he's talking about fellow believers, those who have chosen to pursue God, those who have chosen to follow Jesus alongside us. But I think it goes way beyond this. Because Adelphoi can also mean someone belonging to your same people type, so a fellow countryman, or it can simply mean another person, anyone else. Now, think about John. John, John's like the love guy, okay? He's always going on about love, you know, God love, 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 and we should love, and, and all this. He's going on about it all the time. And... uh In the next chapter, 1 John 4, from verse 19, he's kind of still on this topic, still on this subject, and he's almost repeating some of the things that he's just said. But he says this from verse 19. He says, We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister, a Delphoi, is a liar. For whoever does not love their Delphoi, whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. This is the command of Jesus. He said, anyone who loves God must also love their Adelphoi, their brother and sister. Now I've highlighted that last phrase there because John, what John is doing is clearly uh, paralleling or referring back to something that Jesus himself taught in Luke 10. So if we look at this chapter in Luke 10, you know this whole concept of loving God and loving others is inseparable. In everything that, about Jesus and the scriptures, it doesn't permit us to separate those two. Uh, so in Luke 10, it says this. Some of you know this, this story. Um, on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is it written in what is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? The guy answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who then is my neighbour? And, you know, we know the story. Jesus kind of responds to that question, well, who am I supposed to love then like that? Who is it? Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan. You know, we all know that story, the story. But this Samaritan, he reaches with love beyond his own religious borders. He reaches beyond his own countrymen 
borders, he reaches out with love to his natural enemy. And Jesus says, yep, that's the kind of love I'm talking about. That's the love that you need to have and express. We are to love sacrificially one another here, and we're to love in the same way to those in the world, even our so-called enemies. And Paul kind of summarizes this in Galatians 6. He says, therefore, as we have opportunity, because it's an opportunity, I love that, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. He says, do good, or love everyone, but especially show that love to those who are part of the church. So secondly then, how, how does this outwork in our day-to-day life? Is it only valid if I come across people who have been you know, in some dreadful accident, they're drowning uh, in, in a river or they're trapped in a falling building, I have to jump in and drown or jump in there and have the wreckage fall on me in, in getting those out? Is that the only way that I can validly express this kind of sacrificial love of Jesus? Well, no, <laughs> clearly no. Although it may come to that, it may include even moments like that. But each of us can actually make some small decisions, small choices, small sacrifices for the sake of others every day in our lives. You know, back to when we were baptized again. When we baptized others here, we don't say that we're baptizing people into a perfect life, do we? And like this kind of like magic water trick, you know, they, poof, poof, that's it, boom, bang, their brand new life, perfect. No. What we do is we baptize them into a new way of life, a new way of life. It's in a life that is continual sacrifices for God and what he's making us into. It's also, it's, it's making small decisions, making small sacrifices that make us a different person over time. Small decisions, small sacrifices with big commitments, right? <laughs> and over time, those decisions, they draw us into a life that you just could not imagine. <laughs> and that might be small steps now, small sacrifices, but it grows. And that's what it's about, small decisions today, small, small sacrifices. You know, here at the Vineyard, we have what we call life groups, uh, small groups that run during the week for three terms across the year. And what you could say is that those of us who have committed to be a part of those life groups, we are recognizing that life can be done better alongside others than it is alone. Um, and so if you like, we kind of sacrifice that night a week just so we can be together, to be in one another's lives, to bless and encourage um, one another Again, we're not gathering that we can prioritize on getting my needs met, but how can I consider the needs of others within my small group? And of course, those who lead those groups, they, they sacrifice their time to prepare. You know, they're facilitating this group. They may take hours during the week to actually prepare those small groups for people to come to and grow in. And I know, I mean, speak, you speak to some of the Leaders sometimes they feel can feel down. Sometimes they can feel disappointed when they're you know they've had people saying, "I'm going to be there. I'll absolutely be there," and they don't show, they say anything. And I know they feel quite disappointed with that and down. But they sacrifice the need to self-protect from those disappointments, and they go ahead and do it anyway. 
Think about the, the sacrifices that, you know, time, energy, and sometimes even their own money when it comes to growing our kids here. Being a kid's worker, that we've just seen, and all the youth work. You ask some of the leaders, you ask them, do you actually do that to kind of satiate your own need in some way? <laughs> you know, do you get some kind of gratification out of doing that? I don't think they do. <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> You know, what about those who set up church here on a Sunday morning, sacrificing that extra hour in bed, uh, <laughs> sacrificing just getting over, picking up all the kit, bringing it over across Davon Tree, getting it set up, all the chairs set up, all the tables, making sure that there's refreshments out there, <laughs> and then afterwards uh, reversing all that, putting it all away again. <laughs> yeah, and the folks that do that, they'll openly admit to you, they get no payback. <laughs> I don't get anything from I don't get any gratification out of doing that. They do that just purely so that the rest of us get to enjoy a time of worship together, coming together and learning together. They do that for the rest of us. Self-sacrifice. So they're making those small decisions to emulate Jesus where they are for the benefit of those around us. What about then, okay, that's here, but what about out there in the community? Well, there are those among us that serve in the food bank, sacrificing their time, their energy again to provide, you know, a service for some of the most needy people across our district. They're driving around some people in their own vehicles, collecting food, sorting the food out, packaging it all up. Sometimes people are just there just to be a listening ear when people come in with all their needs and they just want to talk through things and they're just there. What a great way to emulate that self-sacrificing nature of God. You know, we're always trying to think up new ways in which we can kind of gather folks together here and show God's love in serving our community outside. Anything from simple giveaways or acts of random kindness, uh, well, anything like uh, like those sorts of things, garden clearing projects that we've sometimes done and but we know we can only do that whilst there are people that actually say, yes, I am willing to make some small sacrifices, some small decisions today, to be willing to be inconvenienced, to, to kind of pay that cost, if, if you like. I'm willing to be a part of what God wants to do in our town. I want to partner with him in making all things new and reconciling all things to himself, including us <laughs> in, in all of that. But then what about down your street? What about where you live? Have you ever considered just lately how you can lay down your life, that self-sacrificing love for your literal neighbor or neighbors? One of the things I know uh, for certain is that it's very unlikely that you're going to love your neighbor in the way that Jesus commands if you don't even know them. <laughs> it just won't, it won't happen. And, and then learning to love them even when that love is not reciprocated back to us. <laughs> I mean, you have a chat with Paul and Cheryl here. They're doing a bunch of things in the village that they, where they live just to be available. They're intentionally making themselves available for to be a listening ear and just to be around for whatever the need is across the village where they live, <clears throat> for whatever is needed. But why not make it your goal Certainly, in, you know, over the Christmas period and into the next year, make it your goal to get to know the names of your neighbours. That'd be a great step, wouldn't it? 
just get to know the names of your neighbours. And then you can kind of like step it up a little bit further past that, you know, because then you can say, hi, such and such, their name in the street instead of just maybe a wave or, or not, you know. Maybe then you can step it up and find out why is it that actually makes them tick? What are their loves? What are their desires and goals? What are their passions? What about their pains? Where are they suffering? And then you can start to ask God, how can I, with your help, God, be an answer or part of the answer to their need? Is there an elderly person that you know lives down your street, lives alone? Maybe over the winter months ahead, you know, they could struggle to get out and collect their own groceries. Why not just offer to commit to doing that on a weekly basis for somebody? I'm going to sacrifice, you know, doing what I wanted to do that day. I'm going to go over and do this for this individual. I know their need. Or maybe, you know, rather than actually, I'm going to sit at home glued in front of the TV, I'm going to sacrifice that time. I'm going to spend some time with this elderly neighbour. Just going to chat with them for a couple of hours. <laughs> How can you make small decisions today, small uh, sacrifices that emulate the sacrificial love of Jesus in your neighbourhood? Because it's in this place, it's in this place where we're loving God, loving as God commanded us to love. And we're actually becoming more, <laughs> more and more like Jesus, which this series is all about. And people around us, you know, they might actually see God through those self-sacrificial actions that we do. Each sacrificial act of love is this retelling of God's great story of sacrificial love for us. I really believe that our small sacrifices can go a long way to changing our communities, changing our nation. I really believe that. Why don't we finish by praying together, shall we? Shall we stand?